Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. Joining us today is Dr. Nicola Galloway, who is a senior lecturer from the University of Glasgow. Very nice to speak to you today, Dr. Galloway. Nice to speak to you too. Thank you for inviting me along. Well, we're happy to have you on the podcast before you give your plenary at JALT, uh, it was coming up this weekend on November the 12th, uh, Japanese time, 8 p.m. Now, we're going to speak to you a little bit about uh, a paper that we've selected to discuss, but beforehand, I'd just like to ask you about your preparations to give not just a presentation, but a plenary speech at a conference, you know, on a different continent, a uh, different, <laughs> different time zone. I mean, obviously, you're, you're, you're very confident in the, in the topic that you're going to be presenting on, but has anything changed about the way you prepare for these kind of presentations in the time of COVID? I think it's getting used to different time zones. I found I'm in Indonesia tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. and my plenary was wow. actually scheduled for 6 a.m. I think the workshop is 6 a.m., but the plenary's now changed to 11 to 12 UK time, which is good. Um, so I think that's been the main thing, actually, getting used to, to all the different time zones and being unable to meet people in person. I think that's mm. a real thing about conference, you know, networking and, and meeting new early career researchers as well and um, old friends, old colleagues. So that's that's a pity that I won't be able to come to Japan in person, but I'm, I'm getting used to this online method of working. It's something that's come up before that it's it's just different from how we used to do it and how much we would prefer to be meeting in person. It's kind of the backstory to this podcast, really, because myself and my co-presenter, Jonathan, you know, thought about how much we liked going to conferences and then we suddenly couldn't do it anymore. So this was a chance to meet with people. Um, the paper we're going to be speaking about today is Global English's Language Teaching, Bottom-Up Curriculum Implementation. And it fits quite well in a series of interviews I've been doing, starting last year with Dr. Aya Matsuda, whose paper from 2012 you actually cite in this paper about the production of a curriculum, World Englishes or Global Englishes related curriculum. You begin your paper discussing Global Englishes as, a, as an umbrella term for several other acronyms in modern sociolinguistics, like English as a lingua franca, English as an international language. Do you think the field is becoming too fragmented in the framing of these concepts? It's an interesting question, and Aya's work's been very instrumental to my own work in the field. The paper in question was a paper written with my research assistant, a PhD student at my former university, Takia Numajiri. And Takia helped with reporting the findings and the data analysis. As you say, we begin the paper with an overview of global Englishes, and we define it as an umbrella term for several other acronyms. I think it's important to point out that as English has spread beyond its original boundaries and it's increasingly used on a truly global scale and particularly now in the educational domain, domain with the phenomenal growth in EMI, this is an area that I've also become quite heavily involved in. I worked at an EMI institution in Tokyo. With the globalization of English and interest in the diversity of English related fields of research within applied linguistics, as you see, have emerged to document the use of English globally, how it manifests itself and more recently how it should be taught. And this is where 
my work lies in the pedagogical implications of the global spread of English. Global English's researchers highlight the pluricentricity of English use and they showcase how it's adapted and used alongside other languages. As Stephen May points out, you know, multilingualism, it seems, is a topic du jour, at least, um, at least in applied critical uh, linguistics. Global English's research is part of this movement and it aims to consolidate work in these related fields, world Englishes, English as a lingua franca, English as an international language. As an umbrella term, Global English's research also aims to unite similar movements in the field of second language acquisition, such as translanguaging and the multilingual turn. Research has continued to expand change shape um, and also take clear directions towards pedagogical concerns, as I mentioned. Researchers in all of these fields showcase the irrelevance of a curricula based on static native English norms for the majority of English learners today, who, as we know, are learning English as a global language to use as a global lingua franca in a very multilingual and globalized world. All of the major schools of scholarship within the Global English's domain have lobbied for transformation in language teaching practice. And these have also culminated in different models for change. A World English's informed ELT, the EIL blueprint, Elphaware pedagogy, and Global English's language teaching. These calls for change center on the need for a new orientation to language in the TESOL curriculum, and one that promotes a more flexible view of language, um, one that emancipates non-native speakers from native speaker norms, one that repositions the target interlocutor and where, uh, one where learner agency is central as well, and also one where language creativity is nurtured. So ultimately then, the point I'm trying to make here is that growing research within Global Englishes calls for curricula that recognises that multilingualism is the norm, that validates learners' linguistic repertoires and doesn't measure um, student or learners' proficiency and competency with reference to native norms. I don't think, to answer your question, the field is becoming too fragmented in its framing of these concepts. Global Englishes aims to be an inclusive paradigm. Um, it showcases how scholars in these different fields who focus on different aspects of the globalization of English have a similar underlying ideology. And in my recent book with Heath Rose with Cambridge University Press, Global Englishes for Language Teaching, we highlight again that we define Global Englishes as an umbrella term to unite the shared endeavors of these interrelated fields. We use the term as an umbrella term to consolidate research in world Englishes, ELF and EIL, -E sorry, um, and also draw on scholarship from translanguaging and multilingualism in SLE. So it's defined as an umbrella term as an inclusive paradigm mm. that embraces this broad spectrum of interrelated research. So to fully understand global Englishes, we need to examine more closely these interrelated fields of world Englishes, ELF, EIL, translanguaging, the multilingual term. So I, I don't think the field's becoming more fragmented. Well, to follow up on that point, and, and I would agree with the basis of what you said, but to follow up on what you are mentioning, the idea of being a, a multilingualist, 
how much would you say that you yourself are multilingual within the language of English, being able to, as Suresh uh, Kanagara just speaks about, negotiating your interactions? How much would you say that you are uh, a confident multilingualist within English as an international language? I think, um, yeah, I mean, experience um, dealing with, um, dealing, speaking with speakers from various um, backgrounds, learning how to accommodate as well. I think it's this experience in international context that's a real, um, a real asset to international communication. I mean, as we know, uh, research shows that it's, it's native English speakers that um, don't function as well in international exchanges as non-native speakers who have more um, experience um, using English as a lingua franca. Yeah, it's something that came up in an interview that, I, well, at first I did with Jennifer Jenkins and then with James D'Angelo, where the idea of monolingual speakers of English are, are kind of mm. almost aggressively monolingual in not being able to accommodate, as you say, people who are using the same language, but they need to negotiate their their part of the interaction. Personally, I'm I'm very interested, uh, concerned uh, in the idea of practitioners in ELT in relation to uh, global Englishes. If a practitioner in your department was very resistant, and this is something that we also talked about with <laughs> Professor D'Angelo, what could you do or say to change their mind to this kind of uh, idea of uh, pluricentricity and multilingualism or should they be removed from the program altogether? Yeah this um, notion of resistance comes up quite a lot when we, we talk about global English language teaching or elsewhere pedagogy or world in English informed um, ELT and I think you raise an important point here both in terms of practitioners' attitudes, the importance of practitioners' attitudes, and also this possible resistance to mm. any innovation in the TESOL curricula. I mean, resistance to new concepts won't just influence the curriculum, um, but they might also help explain you know, a possible reluctance or resistance to change right. as well. And we do see this within the paradigm. In my recent book, I draw a lot on curriculum innovation theory, and um, I've started to explore this in more detail. So starting to look, I, I started in the field looking at students' attitudes uh, with a course on world Englishes in Japan. This was my PhD thesis. And then as I left the classroom and moved into academia, teaching on a master's in TESOL program at the University of Edinburgh, I was able to introduce a teacher education course where I introduced a global Englishes course. I have moved more into teacher education mm. and more into thinking more about curriculum innovation as well. And I think it's important to note that, you know, different stakeholders will always have different views about an innovation. We've got change agents, to use white et al. terms, um, those that advocate the innovation. So myself, for example, the global Englishes researchers, and then we've got the receivers or um, the, the changers, and the, these would be the teachers that were asking to put these innovations into effect. And this is a really challenging task, and they'll encounter um, different obstacles depending on their context. And I think that's really important um, to highlight that this, this has to be context specific. And that's really why the title of the article in TESOL Quarterly is also bottom-up curriculum innovation. And it has to be in consultation with the teachers themselves. Um, I mean, any 
failure to take the teacher's viewpoints or attitudes into consideration will almost invariably lead to difficulties or resistance to change. Even if an institution was to make um, Global English's <laughs> language teaching adaptations to the curriculum, if they don't um, take teachers' viewpoints into consideration, then they may not be delivered at the classroom level. There will always be resistance. Um, of course, there will be. Um, Global English's language teaching requires a new ontological stance, you know, both about language teaching and learning, but also about language itself. Um, teachers may reject this if it clashes with their beliefs. So we really need to understand their belief systems. But it's not about changing attitudes or changing beliefs. It's about working with teachers on teacher education courses to explore the underlying factors behind these beliefs. And this also relates to my, my work on language attitudes with students about exploring these factors where these strong attachments to standard language ideology and, and native speakerism come from and, and how do we address this? How do we address the various context specific barriers that they may face in their, in their own context? I've identified myself that one of the main barriers to guilt is um, teacher beliefs, um, attachments to standard language ideology, um, and also practitioner education as well. But I do think a lot of headway is being made in this area. We've got a number of courses now around the world teaching global English's subject matter on postgraduate applied linguistics and TESOL courses. So I think it's really about working with these teachers. And I certainly don't think if someone was resistant, re resistant, resistant to this notion that they should be removed. I mean, this is academia. We have different opinions, different backgrounds. And, you know, it's, it's good that people come from different backgrounds with, with different viewpoints. And we, we can discuss these in the class, encouraging them to reflect on their own context. It's interesting you bring up the, the concept of attitudes and also the idea of stakeholders, because those are the two things that I'd focus on in my PhD research, which, you know, the, the data collection wrapped up um, well over a decade now. I'm getting old myself. But <laughs> the, that's why Dr. Matsuda's work, the work that she was doing in 2012 was basically a, at almost exactly the same time that I was finishing up my PhD. And so the last decade has been an interesting time to see this development mm -hmm. of, as you say, the, the different the different stakeholders. And these include uh, the teachers, the administration, even the teaching assistants in, in the classroom, the students. And my conclusion to my research was one of the problems that 10 years ago was this idea that named varieties, that Japanese, Korean, Chinese learners of English in Japan would say, I have a problem with Vietnamese English or I have a problem with Bangladeshi English. And uh, I worked at an international university at the time. So they had firsthand interactions with people. And so addressing these concerns that people, the students and also the teachers had with these interactions was one of the main outcomes of, of my research and something that I've tried to address over the last 10 years with work and particularly um, in this uh, this podcast project as well I have an offshoot of that we can talk about later but you you would say that it it comes through teacher education I think we both agree that language teachers have a kind of basic incentive to try and make sure that their students get the most out of their courses that they get the best possible outcome for them as students but in terms of teacher education how, how do you 
educate or train or teach or encourage a teacher who believes that they should be teaching to a standard like a UK standard or an American standard or an Australian standard, whichever one you'd, whichever one they would identify. Uh, is there any source that you would point them in the direction of to, to try and encourage them to be a little bit more open? I think that we have to encourage our pre-service and in-service teachers on our courses to consider their own context when they're um, learning global English subject matter to critically reflect on the policies, the education policies, the materials, the Ministry of Education approved textbooks that they, they're often compelled to work with. You know, some teachers may be very fortunate that they're able to design their own elective courses or their own, um, their own entire curriculum. But very often my students are going to work in perhaps high school contexts where they have to work with a, a, you know, a government approved curriculum that is based on native English norms. So what I tend to do in my course, and I've worked with Aya's materials, she has a book with lesson plans. And so I put the students into groups and they work with these lesson plans and they adapt these. So they, they critically reflect on these World Englishes or EIL um, lesson plans for the appropriateness of students in their own context, the, how they would adapt this to um, their, their own curriculum as well. So, I think it's important to note, and I highlight this in the recent book too, that it doesn't have to be a complete overhaul of the entire curriculum. Um, you can introduce global English subject matter in a number of different ways. I did this in um, an EAP curriculum that I was, an ESP curriculum um, I was a coordinator of in a Japanese university with Heath Rose, where mm -hmm. we were preparing students for an, an, an EMI program in business, but we introduced global English subject matter in the EAP course. So it can be introduced in different ways. The reading materials were about the globalization of English and that the representations were on this topic as well. So I think that it's, Again, to go back to your point about changing beliefs, sort of there's resistance, it's, it's about critically reflecting on their own context and what's appropriate and what GELP proposals would be relevant for students in their context, what barriers would be most salient and do other barriers exist as well. And I mean, I think we, we have to bear in mind that we, we have large scale proficiency tests or university oh, entrance sure. exams that, yeah, which is, is a major barrier as well. Well, that's something that's come up before. I've discussed that with um, Professor Nobuyuki Hino about the um, high stakes testing, things like uh, TOEIC, TOEFL, IELTS. These are things that we, we can't ignore, but mm. that seem to be moving in a more kind of English as an international language oriented direction, uh, particularly in terms of the content and how to uh, how to get students, test takers to address them. Uh, I would say that um, one of the things that yourself and Professor Rose published on is something that is part of my EIL courses here in Japan now, which is the idea of student constructed listening journals where they go out, you give them a topic, they go out and they do their own research. They find videos or audio sources from various different places. And then they share these URLs between themselves and then form a discussion within the certain parts of class time based on that research. So I would like 
first of all, personally to say thank you very much for coming up with that idea and also showing in, in the paper that you published at the time uh, how effective it can be and also to get students to buy in to the idea that you don't have to just take what the teacher gives you or take what the textbook presents to you, that there are so many more sources available to you these days that you can go out and find your own uh, information. I think the listing journals as well are um, even, you know, a good way to, for students to acknowledge that they're using English as a lingua franca, that they mm. that their target interlocutors are not going to be native English speakers. So really to reflect on how they're using English, who they're encountering, and then to reflect on this as well. So I'd be interested to hear more about how it's going in your class. Well, we've also got a, a separate project going on, uh, myself and my uh, research partner, Dr. Aaron Hahn, who is also a former uh, interviewee on this podcast, using the various uh, materials that we can produce from this podcast itself and having students uh, go through them in class. So, for example, we have Dr. Matsuda, Dr. Harumi, Dr. Decimus, uh, Dr. Hoffmeyer, Dr. Gano, who's also a, a plenary speaker at JALT this year as well, Dr. Hino, Dr. Pe uh, Dr. Pekarari, and Dr. Uh, Ali Alhori, people who are using English in their, in their research. It's not their first language, but they are high-level users of it and using it in order to, uh, to communicate. And so I've kind of taken hour-long interviews and cut them down to about 10 minutes where only the speaker is speaking. And provided transcripts and we're, we're doing this to provide you know for example just to take the example of uh, Dr. Gano from the University of Essex so she's originally from Greece but now she's working on their, their master's course there and like I say she's also a plenary speaker so we want to encourage students to see um, people using English for their own purposes and it's not UK Australia uh, you know USA Canadian based but it is understandable and it is highly technical and it is academic and so that's a that's a kind of side project raising that, that started as, yeah. Yeah, raise it as, as, a, as a legitimate speaker of English that was really the main goal of my world English course when I was working in Japan mm. 10 15 20 years ago now <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I, 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 I do look back on, on certain things when I'm uh, trying to prepare what I should be doing in my classes with my students and just realize that their points of reference are very, very different from my own. So um, the number of participants in your, in your study was, was, was fairly low. Um, and so the variance in their background required you to use like a non-parametric analysis of your data. And uh, although the results are encouraging, are you recruiting more participants for a, a follow-up study? Uh, what did you learn from this stage, from what's reported in the paper, uh, to, <laughs> so to, to inform what you're going to do in the future? Yes, the number of participants are fairly small in that study, and I was collecting a larger data set. I have data that I have yet to analyze, but I moved institutions. I was on sabbatical for a year, and then I moved institutions, and I'll be introducing a new Teaching English as an International Language course at the University of Glasgow from January. Mm -hmm. So I plan to start up this research again 
So things were paused a little. The idea was gathering a larger data set, but I think it's important to point out, you know, normal data is very common in real world research. Um, just because non-parametric tests were used doesn't detract from the findings. Um, this was also the first exploratory study using these methods. And mm. I am always looking at ways to expand on these findings and improve on the instruments in future research as well. There was a follow-up study to this article and it was reported in my CEP book um, where we examined the attitude before and after the students mm -hmm. um, took the course. It was an intervention study. Follow-up studies also include, I've set up an online global network um, teaching English and teaching in English in global context. So it has EMI strands and a global English strand. I've got over 70 coordinators around the world. We've got a global English resource section, a global English research, global English teacher development section, where the idea is that we want to, well, I wanted to encourage more interaction between researchers and practitioners, as, as well as increase the impact of our work as well and encourage pedagogical uptake. You know, teachers are very busy. They don't always have the time to read um, full-length books or full-length articles. So we have little um, blog summaries of articles, blog interviews with teacher educators in Global English. So it's a growing network. I've recently just been granted funding to develop an alumni strand to this. So it's internal funding at the University of Glasgow. So the idea is that I'll be able to work with my uh, students once they graduate and really to to do long longitudinal, I'm just trying to think there's any longitudinal projects with them where um, I don't want to say follow them in their teaching careers, track <laughs> them or work with them. Um, stay, to stay in contact with them. Stay in contact, yes, with them to, to examine, you know, how relevant was the course for their teaching practice? What can mm. I learn from mm. this as well? How are they implementing global English perspectives in their teaching? if at all, how are they mm. reinventing this? What barriers do they face? So my work has really moved from looking at attitudes to English, addressing these um, attitudes with, with, with students, awareness raising, teacher education, identifying um, what scholars are calling for in the field. So with the identification mm. of the, the GELT proposals, I think, do I have six GELT proposals? That was part of the PhD and also identifying the possible barriers that exist and all of this culminated in the GELT framework. So it's, it's, it's an ongoing project, but I think really, um, I recently conducted a systematic review for the Language Teaching Journal with Heath Rose and Jim McKinley. And in our conclusion, we, we, we call for more action research with teachers, you know, for more longitudinal research designs. And, also um, studies that can measure the effects of ongoing interventions in real classrooms. This was a real concern of mine when I left Japan to take up post at Edinburgh that I was really concerned about becoming disengaged with classroom practice. Uh, most right. of my work was in the classroom and I, yeah, I'd, I'd like to get back into the classroom to work with teachers as well to, to see what's going on and and um, yeah, really to work with them again for this bottom-up curriculum implementation. Just to pick up on a, just a couple of things there, um, I, I'm not denigrating the use of non-parametric quantitative uh, analysis. Uh, I use that for my for my PhD, which is why it 
it stood out to me. And oftentimes it's, it's useful to point out the difference between the two, particularly for um, language researchers who work uh, exclusively in quant. So they would prefer everything to be lined up and all the distributions to be, to be normalized. But as you say, in, in real life, this is not something that you often have the option uh, to do unless you have a large scale study. I'm a, I'm a qualitative researcher myself, so I, I'm, uh, I'm with you on that. I also uh, like the idea of uh, encouraging action research. This is something that's often not denigrated, maybe that's the wrong word, but it is not given enough weight when it comes to people who are actually teachers who are actually trying to do something positive in their own classrooms so to encourage a kind of bottom-up as as you say approach to this from the the very people that we want to get on our side as world english's um researchers i think is a a very positive uh thing to do i'd like to pick up on your conclusion about the idea of a, a sense of curiosity as it relates to students and uh, global English as uh, language teaching. And I also believe that this curiosity is growing and becoming more mainstream and therefore part of modern language teaching. And I hope it does continue to grow. Do you have any predictions about where the industry is going to be in the next 10 to 15 years? Do you have any message to textbook publishers about how they should change their approach for available <laughs> materials in relation to this? Yeah, just before I answer that, I just want to go back really quickly to the sure. point about action research, because I think this is really key. And um, mm. I just want to make it clear that none of this is about telling teachers what to do or that they have to abolish all their current teacher practice or that, you know, I, I felt when I started researching this, that there was so much at the theoretical level that what you're doing is wrong. You know, this, this, this curriculum is, there's a mismatch between the curriculum that you're, you're teaching and how students are using the language, but nobody was telling teachers how to address this. Right. So there was a real theory practice divide. And, and, and that was where my, my, my work started and that's how to address this theory practice divide. And that started with the identification of the, the, what people were calling for at the theoretical level, what the barriers were, and mm. now I've started to look at well, well how can we address this in the classroom and to go back to your question also well, about oh, if i could i don't want to i don't want to cut you off but i i completely agree with that and i think it's something mm -hmm. that i i hope that in interviews that uh, i've done for example with professor matsura with professor jenkins professor hino professor d'angelo um, professor maboob that we've tried to make it practical that mm -hmm you don't just leave it with a better understanding of the theoretical underpinnings of the situation and then just go off and do what you know, that you go away with an idea of i can try that which is why i brought up the the uh, listening journals the, the the student um organized listening journals before that's a paper that really spoke to me as someone who like okay this is something practical i can do this on monday morning in my classes i can start this right away giving students agency over the sources that they look at but you know, take them away from, you know, just the sources that we've been using in class, and they go out and find their own sources, it doesn't matter which variety of English they're using, they're using their own understanding of English to investigate a topic. And it doesn't matter which source that they're, they're using. And I, I really do think that those are, are useful things. So making it as practical as possible, I think is a is a positive message uh, to for you know, for teachers in their own settings, but. <laughs> yeah, no, I would agree. And I think agency is important for teachers as well. And, 
equipping them with the skills to conduct mm. action research, I think should be an important point of Global English's teacher education courses. Um, your final question was yes. um, about... I, I, can, I, can, I can reset it for you if you want. I'm, I, it, I liked the uh, concept of a sense of curiosity as it relates to Global English uh, language teaching. Um, where do you see the industry in the next 10, 15 years? Do you have a message for the textbook publishers where they should be looking for their materials for their next range of books? Yeah, I would agree that there is certainly a growing sense of curiosity in the topic, which is great. We've seen increased interest. Um, I mean, plenary talks on global languages, for example, a number of conferences, uh, full length books on the pedagogical implications of the globalization of English online networks, like my own network. Um, my colleague Ali Fod Selvi and I have also just recently signed a contract to co-edit a new Routledge handbook of teaching English as an international language, which is great. And here it relates to your first question about GELT being a uh, global English has been an umbrella term as well, and that scholars in all these different fields are calling for change. Um, in this book, we aim to bring together critically orientated theoretical and practical discussions on the pedagogical implications of global Englishes into one handbook. You know, we have mm. an ELF handbook, a World Englishes handbook, an ELT handbook, but hopefully in this handbook, we'll be able to bring all of this um, together. Um, to inform this much needed paradigm shift away from native English speaking norms, textbook publishers. <laughs> so yes, um, I've written on this myself, published on this, and materials have been identified as being a key barrier. It's a money-making industry. Nearly 10 years ago, Jennifer Jenkins pointed out, you know, the prevailing orientation in EL materials still remains undoubtedly towards English as a native language. Um, a decade on, it's still the case. We have certainly made headway. We have um, some teacher education books that make uh, fleeting mention of ELF, for example, or in the preface to the book, there's an acknowledgement of the globalization of English, but then it's just forgotten about in, the, mm. in the, the rest of the book. So it's not really enough just to acknowledge that English is a global language on the back of the book or in the introduction, but we need to you know, critically engage with this um, throughout the book. Um, the pedagogical implications of the global spread of English have certainly gathered momentum um, but little attention has been placed on ELT materials specifically. And this is quite crucial given that materials are a central part of the learning and the teaching process. Um, you know, they serve as a major source of language input for students. Um, I would say that in the field of ELT materials design and evaluation and uh, publishers as well need to acknowledge the, the flourishing research within the global Englishes paradigm. Um, but I think really we need, we've, we've had more locally produced materials and this is really helpful, but we, we, we need to encourage more dialogue, between, just like we need to encourage dialogue between researchers right. and practitioners, we need more dialogue between researchers, practitioners and materials writers and publishers. I think facilitating this dialogue would facilitate this movement away from native norms. Um, well, I've had, mean, this I've had this conversation with uh, uh, Aaron Han when we were actually putting this course together and the idea being that like, as you talk about barriers 
uh, between the theory practice divide, the internet is something that has both cemented, solidified some of these, these barriers in terms of the materials development, but also that it has opened it up if you give students the uh, the tools, as you say, to go out and find their own materials. It's just how you integrate those two and how you encourage teachers. I mean, the, the reason why I think the textbook industry is as big as it is, is because of the pressures that are put on teachers. I mean, you've, you've, you've taught in Japan before. We have listeners from around the world, but just to give an example of there might be someone who is teaching 14 15, 16 lessons a week. That might not sound a lot, but when they're 90 minute lessons and they're spread over three different universities, then the textbook becomes your best friend that you can go to. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So you can go to the classroom, you open it up, it's page 36, play the audio, do the thing, move on, move on, move on. And, And then never having to question the theoretical underpinnings of your, your teaching philosophy or, or never having to even question why you're doing what you're doing so just that time to be able to step back and and create um a new way of giving people access possibly even free access to materials that they could use for their uh, for their own assistance and not having to rely on the big name publishers i think is one way of circumventing this problem i mean in in your in your own prediction do you think this is something that is is feasible within the next 10 to 15 years that we're going to get to a point where you know you're going to be able to, there's going to be enough material available online for teachers who have this mindset or have or who have an interest in global english's language teaching that they're going to, there's going to be enough available for them to support what is oftentimes a very stressful job in terms of uh, lesson preparation do you, do you think that's that's a, a that's something that's feasible i would like to say yes i think we have a growing evidence base i mean if you mm-hmm. think of all the work um on within the fields of english as a lingua franca as well we with corpora as well um i mean books communicative language teaching textbooks that claim to showcase authentic real world use of english are, are really are based on uh, native English. So we really have to question where this really is authentic in in the 21st century. Again, I think it's a money-making industry. I think publishers will be afraid that if they dare to be different, um, this might harm sales. But I I would hope that they would realize that offering something groundbreaking and cutting edge, something that really equips our learners to function Mm. in today's globalized world, would lead to improved sales in the long run. I think that we, as I mentioned, we have this growing evidence base. Uh, My work on the the network is aiming to gather resources from teachers Mm. teaching Global English's material. So we have a resource coordinator who's currently gathering these resources and also in the the fields of teacher education as well. We have some books now, such as I Am Matsuda's that has some lesson plans. I had some lesson plans in my uh, 2017 book on attitudes. 
so we we do have a, a growing body of work ga mm. gathering these resources that I think will be very useful. But I mean, you raise a really important point that we have to acknowledge that teachers are very busy. A lot of what we're doing at the moment is encouraging them to be critical of their current materials and to adapt. And they don't always have the time to, to, to do this. So they yes, we we urgently need materials for this purpose. Well, let's say that the, there's a, a teacher out there right now who is, as you say, very busy. Um, and we want them, but we want them to be critical of these kind of underpinning assumptions that we should be looking at. You say native English. I, I generally say first language use English. What things should they begin to criticize? Like uh, when they when they look at the textbook, okay, like I say, it's page 36, we're going to start the audio. What are some things that they should be critical of in their presentation of these materials, if they if they have to do it tomorrow, how how could they address these things? I do have uh, in a chapter I wrote for the Routledge Handbook of Elf. Then I have a framework for evaluating textbooks. So Brian Tomlinson had um, who works in the field of ELT materials evaluation and design. I um, had a, a framework for EIL and I, I've, I've drawn upon this. So, yeah, just highlighting what it is. I, I can't remember the name of the framework off the top of my head, but I did look at this. So, yeah, to outline what it is that we should be looking at when we're looking at um, textbooks. And I, I think needs analysis is crucial here. Mm, you know, our, mm. our students needs will differ and it has to be context specific. There's no one size fits all textbook or I mean, in the days of grammar translation method, we had these long lists of vocabulary and key right, grammar items. Right. That, yeah, this assumption that learners around the world had the same needs. But, you know, as we moved towards um, ESP, we we had a, a more focus on needs analysis and, mm -hmm. and need-based materials. So I think, again, it relates to action research and for students to to think about well, what are the, why are my students learning English? Who will be their target interlocutors? What context will they be using English in? And, and to use that as a basis for an evaluation. Well, give us some positive news. Are, are you engaged with, uh, <laughs> you mentioned that, so the paper we've been looking at is Global English's Language Teaching Bottom-Up Curriculum Implementation. And it's a paper that you wrote with a graduate student, uh, Takuya uh, Numajiri give us some good news like what what research is coming down the down the pike that 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 you can see from your own graduate students who you are um shepherding through this process or anything that that you uh have seen in its early stages yeah one of the reasons for setting up the global network was the growing number of early career researchers in this mm -hmm. field so we have mm -hmm. a youtube series uh webinar series for early career researchers I found that some of my own PhD students needed to network with other Global Englishes PhD students. So we, we partner with the Centre for Global Englishes, for example, and the, the Oxford um, Centre for EMI. So it, it's really nice to see that the PhD students and early career researchers working together there. The network was also set up because you, you, you meet people at conferences that are interested in this field and you talk and then, then you all go home. And it was set up to facilitate ongoing dialogue and so that we could work together as well. So I've seen a lot of 
a lot of good things coming out the network, a lot of the early career researchers, some are still PhD students, some have now graduated, um, they're having regular meetings via the network uh, to work on collaborative research projects as well, which is great. We see some of the work like Natsuno Funada, um, who's now taken up post at the University of Tokyo. Her PhD was on language attitudes. She has a recent book with Aya Montekantiwong and um, he throws in multilingual matters. So they, they focus on attitudes and teacher education. And so it's great to see uh, um, you know, a, a lot of PhD students going on to publish in the field as well. And before we finish today, um, is, there, is there any early information that you could give about what your plenary speech is, is going to be about? Is it going to be similar to what we've spoken about today? Are there new revelations that you could share with us before your speech? Yeah, I'll be drawing on the recent systematic review on global English innovations. So I think um, it relates to your last question there about um, current developments in the field. And I think we've seen a proliferation of classroom and teacher education innovation studies, which is great. So we've, we've moved beyond looking at teachers' attitudes or students' attitudes towards this concept of global Englishes, but actually looking at, you know, how to implement something in the classroom and to trial this out. So I'll, I'll go over some of those studies there and then also in the workshop as well. And, and we'll focus a little on researching this topic, which is at six o'clock in the morning UK time. <laughs> Well, if you're uh, if you're interested, and uh, I hope if you've been following our interviews uh, that that you are, Dr. Galloway's plenary will be on November the twelfth at eight p.m. Japanese time, which I believe is midday Scottish time. Eleven o'clock. I was told. Is it eleven o'clock? It, it the, the clocks may have changed by then. We might be. We might have had a bit of a switch on that one. But um, anyway, for for the people who are joining in Japan, it's at eight p.m. on Friday night. So uh, please uh, join that. The paper we've been speaking about today is from TESOL Quarterly. It's called uh, Global English's Language Teaching, Bottom-Up Curriculum Implementation, which was a paper that Dr. Galloway wrote with uh, Takura Numajiri. And uh, I hope that he also has a healthy future ahead of him promoting this, because this is certainly something that I'm going to continue working on. And I wish you the best of luck in your work as well. Thank you very much. And we'll have to chat soon about your work. Well, I, I look forward to it. Thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. Lost in Citations is an audio journal that invites you to contribute your own interviews. If there's someone whose work you cite regularly and you'd like to hear more from them, then please feel free to arrange your own interview and submit it for consideration. For more information, go to lostincitations.com, where you'll find our guide for contributors. What we ask is you submit a five-minute audio sample before the interview so that we can help you with any audio quality issues. Then you can go ahead and record 45 minutes to an hour and submit it at lostincitations at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, we have Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter pages. Finally, a very helpful thing you can do is, if you like the work we're doing, recommend it to a friend. Thank you very much.